Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 33rd episode of the Truth Island podcast. Willpower has often been ascribed as being one of the leading characteristics in influencing events. Whether it is success in business, overcoming difficult life obstacles, we often credit the individual as having immense levels of resilience that allow him or her to achieve just about anything they so desire. However, a more recent theory has emerged that it is not only our hard work that yields to certain outcomes, but that the universe itself may bend to our will or even the collective will of us as a species. Books such as 2006's The Secret suggest that merely thinking or concentrating on something can increase the probability that it will actually happen. And the universe conspires in helping you to achieve whatever your will desires. Critics, however, are quick to point out that it is not only willpower alone that is causing these results to happen, but rather the concerted effort on behalf of the individual that is getting them closer to their intended goals. Projects such as the Global Consciousness Project, which have placed random number generators and magnetic sensors all over the earth, allegedly report readings of weird activity happening during major cataclysmic events, suggesting our collective willpower might be at play. Joining me on this collective journey, I am once again joined with Alexander. Alex, I'm placing all of my willpower into figuring this out. Do you think the universe has my back? <laughs> yes, I think the universe has your back and your front and your top and your bottom. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think the universe has it all under its control. Let's put it that way. So I'm so excited that we're talking about the GCC, the Global Consciousness Project. Excuse me, the GCP, Global Consciousness Project. You know, it's one of those like weird science experiments where it sounds absolutely batshit crazy. Um, but maybe just maybe 150 years from now, people look back on this like Tesla and wonder how this particular person unlocked secrets of the universe. I really came across this the first time because, you know, I've, I've told you this before, I'm a practicing Stoic. Yeah. And yeah. one of the core tenets of Stoicism is the difference between providence or atoms. Basically, they structure two different core beliefs, which is atoms, everything is in chaos. There's absolutely no rhyme or reason for anything. And you just kind of wade through the shit and figure it out. And then the other is providence, where there is some sort of divine structure. And in my opinion, all secrets of the universe, all wisdom, all self-reflection, really for me stems from recognizing patterns in nature. We can all agree that nature has a very specific structure to it. I'm wearing my super skeptical hat on right now, mm -hmm. but a lot of people would point to nature as being completely random and, you know, having no mercy on people. And, and, uh, you know, and we kind of touched upon this a bit, uh, last week where we were talking about like, does nature have like a moral purpose to kind of teach us something? So elaborate on how it's not as random as we think. Yeah. I think that's categorically false. I think there's so much pattern in nature. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many like reflective properties that we can find here on planet Earth that are resemblant for new discoveries found out in space. Classic example, solar winds. There's wind in space, proverbially speaking. You know, there's the, the, the idea of how death meets life and the creation of galaxies, where in the center you need this tremendous black hole just sucking in all the energy, which actually creates the stew which we know as our galactic light, as our gas, as our material, there's always a counterbalance to each. So, you know, people point towards the negative aspects of nature, that chaos, black hole uh, aspect of nature, where it's, oh, that's just what it is. But that's just simply not true. You need to have that dichotomy. You have to have that balance. And there's so much structure just in the cells. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't even argue that the, the cellular structure of uh, individual life is extremely specific. And then you branch out to the structure of a snowflake. And then you branch out to the structure of sound. And you branch out to how each one thing, just like, um, what is it, I, I believe string theory, right? Or excuse me, entanglement theory, whereas one thing affects the other. You have the moon affecting the waves, which affects sand, which it's not chaotic. 
I think that our pea-sized brains originally saw it as chaos because how could we possibly define the most quote-unquote godly expression of creation from, you know, a Cro-Magnon state to our current modern hyper-emotional state. You know, it's funny. What you're saying kind of reminds me of in the early 2000s, there were a lot of books on something called uh, intelligent design. And intelligent design was meant to be an alternative uh, for people who don't like the the Jewish or Christian God that, you know, um, banned, you know, created Adam and Eve, because there's a lot of, you know, at the time, the atheists are going crazy and saying those stories are ridiculous. How could you believe that a just God would do X, Y, and Z? So intelligent design is basically saying, all right, maybe not all the answers are in the Bible, maybe just the majesty and the awesomeness of how the universe just works in such a clock clockwork-like faction, that alone is evidence for God. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? Absolutely. But I would say that really the cause for that in terms of the jostling for position and theology was more coming into the internet age and people trying to get a profit share of information out there. And, you know, it was just the more barbaric point of view that most religions, unfortunately, have with, you know, the study of them themselves, which is who is right and who is wrong. So I think as all those different um, theologies and ideas were jostling for that position, I mean, I think that's more evident that that was just their intention, not Mm. necessarily that they were correct in the first place, because the reality is, is that there's truth in every single religion. Yes, Um, right. We've both studied many different religions. Many different religions have some better concepts to them, right? Some religions have more archaic concepts to them. And I was, I was raised uh, Christian. I actually preached um, Presbyterian uh, churches when I was like 16, 17, and eventually went overseas to preach in Africa. So my ideas were always this a little bit more of like a rebellious take onto it, a little bit more of a humanist approach, because how could one thing be right? The whole intelligent design argument, for sure. There's 100% intelligent design, but we're not intelligent enough to see the macro. So it's like looking through a pinhole and expecting to understand a 360 degree view. Like it just, it's a ridiculous thing. So, you know, the the fact that people are coming from that place, it's, you know, already, I would say that their, their um, skepticism should be discredited immediately because how do you define ultimate? Speaking to someone a few days ago and I said, like understanding the universe for us as humans is like trying to explain how Congress works to a dog. And it's like, you can teach you can teach a dog many things. You can teach it to eat and stuff. But I'm like, it's basic biology does not allow it to understand how something like Congress works. And I, I, I think that we as humans also need to kind of submit to that same level of humility of like, okay, we are not infinite. We have 10 fingers, we have 10 toes. And there's just no way that we're going to have that, like you said, macro view of the universe. 100% humility is key. And I think core spiritual part of my acceptance of providence over Adams really is, really has stemmed from my sense of humility, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm not riding this ship 100% of the time. Every decision is up to me because I'm in chaos. Therefore, I'm in full control. It's like, you're fooling yourself, you know, like <laughs> maybe I would have argued differently in my younger years when I was far more arrogant and just totally pigheaded and a lot more dumb. Um, but now just with how life has kicked me in the balls multiple times, I can effectively say that I'm not in control of shit. You know, one of my favorite quotes was Aristotle, right? One of my favorite quotes was Aristotle. He said, if there's one thing that I know, it's that I know nothing. That is 100% accurate. Yes, yes. And then I think that's also like even reaching back to Socrates, like, I, you know, ignorance, like, like we, all, we all are ignorant in some way. Now, you had a very, very interesting study involving a plant that you want to yes. share with us. So let's get into this because I've been waiting a sure. long time for this. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So, yes. So Providence, all this really led me to this amazing study, uh, okay. the Global Consciousness Project. And it started in 1998. Basically, the way they set it up is they had an empty room right? And they put a light in the center of this empty room. And it randomly generated uh, which angle it's going to be shooting some of its UV light on. So it's spinning around the room, just hitting different corners at different times, totally random. 
like a random disco ball kind of exactly thing. Okay. exactly like a random disco ball and you know they ran this for a few hours to get a control right before they add the variable into an experiment so sure. they started to add the variable now and what they did is they put a plant into the corner of the room and they ran the same random generator and now, the room's completely dark right completely dark the only yeah. light is from here so Basically, they made a finite uh, resource for a plant, right? It's the one thing it needs. So, well, and water, but of course, um, it needs light. So what they found is that there was a disproportionate level of light on the plant after they added it into the room. This um, experiment is allegedly repeatable. And what they found is that the data that they collected from that correlates with the hypothesis that intelligent life, whether it be plants, you know, living organic life, somehow gets what it needs and reshuffles the deck in terms of odds and probability for it to achieve what it needs to sustain itself. Now, I don't know if this is like a conscious thing. I don't even know if the plant, if they're, if they're referring to the plant as the one making the decision. Right. But what I do find is that evolution always wins classic quote from Jurassic park life uh <laughs> finds a way right so I'm, finds a way. i i want now i gotta put on my super skeptical hat again on here because sure. i i actually want to believe this to be true like i actually i'm like i'm on my i'm on the side because i i love meditating and universe bending to my will or whatever you know i love this kind of stuff mm-hmm. but i do have to um appease the skeptics outside. as you should and yes. as a skeptic within me as well. Absolutely. So I'm thinking about uh, this 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 uh, light that's kind of going around in a room and it's randomly flashing it. I'm wondering, is it possible for, like when they're measuring the light intake on the plant, do mm-hmm. you think it's possible that the plant adapted to the fact that it's really dark in this room and maybe it absorbed, like the fuse, like maybe it like the light shined on the plant a, a, a certain amount of times, but then the plant has some kind of inner mechanism that allows it to utilize light. The, the little light that it's getting, it was able to kind of utilize in a more economical fashion. Do you think that that's at all possible? I see what you mean. Like as in if the top half of the plant just happened to get more light, that the plant somehow decides to have more like, what is it, photosynthesis? Something, but some kind of tip. yeah, some kind of adaption right. function of the plant to to be like okay, it's like imagine for example I cut your diet in half, right, and you're mm. living off half the calories that you are currently consuming, you would somehow figure out a new diet to sustain yourself and give yourself energy, like like and we could think of this as. Um, a good example would be like uh, Jews in concentration camps. Their their cal- their caloric intake was completely slashed, and yet they were able to do incredible feats of manual labor, like building mm-hmm. railroads and 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 all this other stuff. And it was sort of an adaption process where the plant learns that, like, okay, I'm getting X amount of light. I'm somehow going to do something differently to, to, to process this light. Yeah. I think that that's entirely possible, but I also think that that proves really the hypothesis in a way where there is an adaptive nature to every dynamic in this universe, including the way the universe dispels resources. Did they actually count the frequency count of the times that the light uh, like was on the plant? So if, if let's say uh, the plant was at a 45 degree angle, let's, just, let's mm-hmm. just pretend that for a second. Did they count the number of times that the random light shined on a 45 degree angle and said, whoa, 45 degree angle comes up more times than any other degrees, meaning that the, the randomness of the flashing light is, is favoring the angle in which the plant right. is positioned. I see what you mean. Like, have they, did they um, figure out how alignment will affect the, the ratio of absorption? Because like they, they, if the, the, way, the way you're describing it is that the light was distributed completely randomly. So meaning mm-hmm. it would go at 23 degrees, 22 degrees, 7 degrees, 110 degrees. So that's right. completely random. So I'm wondering if they you know, had some kind of tally of like, whoa, we put the plant at 45 degrees and out of 100 flashings, 25 times it actually shined in a 45 degree angle, meaning that even though this light is supposed to be random, it's like artificially shining in a direction that it normally, by probability sake, it should not be shining in. 
hundred percent. Um, I can't say for sure if they did the 45 angle thing. Yeah. I mean, your questions are totally valid, right? Like the fact that we have to split hairs on this, this much is definitely a good sign. And it's a testimonial to, it's a testament to how we should be using science in the first place, which is accurate, repeatable, measurable results. Right. Yeah. But here's the cool thing is they actually took the same experiment and put it a hundred times around the world Hmm. with multiple variables. And allegedly was able to tap into a global consciousness. It's the hence, that's why it's called Global Consciousness Project, where they were able to measure fluctuations in the Earth's consciousness to such a measurable degree that they say it was one in one billion chance that they are inaccurate. Now, look, this is like, this is some crazy science. So ha- by no means have I skimmed through multiple reports and, you know, read their findings and conducted my own, you know, counter skepticism research into it. Um, you know, I'm just a casual observer watching this and going, well, how does my life fit into that? Is it, does it fit into that? Am I convening myself by believing it in the first place? And, you know, does it kind of make sense? And I think just the logic of life, it just, it fits very neatly. I mean, it, it only makes sense that what has us evolve, what forces nature to evolve, what forces animals to do some incredibly wild and nearly impossible feats in order for it to survive, it makes sense that there is some sort of structure like this where if I was a universe, if I had everything in the universe, if I was able to send out as many resources, light, energy, power, evolution, it would make sense that I'm discriminant in how I spread those resources. I mean, already there's boundaries, right? It's already discriminant. You need to be on a planet, in a boundary, in a certain zone, close enough to a sun, right? It's not completely indiscriminate where there's just all of this resource splattered out. It is finite in its choices. So it only makes sense through whatever intelligent design uh, that someone may believe in that it's intelligently placed. I mean, even just a 10, 15% more accurate placement in the universe's resources could have a bountiful difference in terms of how much life it creates, right? And that's the point of everything, I think, I is think- to create life. Yeah, I, I hear no, I I hear what you're saying. Like it is really, really magical, like the exact placement of the earth in proportion to the sun and and believe me, the stars when they say the stars have aligned just so, they they certainly exactly. have. I, I, I totally uh believe that to be true. Thinking back to our plant though, there has to be a certain base level of mm-hmm. resources available because I, I think I mentioned this to you last week. If there was no artificial light in that room at all, it was just a dark room, then that plant would die. It doesn't matter how much the plant wills it. It doesn't matter how much consciousness the plant has. If there is no random light generator and it's just darkness and that plant is not getting watered mm-hmm. uh, on, a, on a regular basis, no matter how much willpower it has, it's going to die. If there's some type of limitation to this consciousness measure, like if if there's not if there's a certain if a certain threshold is not met of of baseline needs and baseline mm-hmm. stuff, no matter how much we as a, a species will or want something to be true, it just mm-hmm. can't happen. Now I just want to reiterate that this was a clinical setting, right? There okay. were no other variables, but when we're talking about life, there's going to be so many variables to how that spells out, right? So in this clinical setting, they allege that they found this measurable proof, this evidence, I guess, let's call it evidence, Um, measurable evidence that this is in fact what happens. So now if you open it up to just how vast our world is, where it's multiple people maybe doing something similar, it's multiple animals, it's also the environment of the wind, it's the environment of, uh, of, of nature, I mean, you know, if you add all that in, how much deviation is there? And, you know, that's a solid question. And I don't know if you can ever measure it, but I take a lot of, uh, a lot of solace into the idea that your thoughts mean something. And also there's some sort of continuation to that because thoughts are the most powerful thing ever created on this planet, hands down. I mean, I the, the idea of thinking, just how that's revolutionized every species who has the ability to think for itself. And of course, humanity. I mean, I don't really think we always think, but 
you know, we can, like we're having this, <laughs> this conversation right yeah, now, right? There's definitely uh, different qualities of thought as right, well, right? right. Like, mm, what am I going to have for dinner is not the same as, oh, whoa, is there a consciousness in the universe? Like, You're right, I don't dinner's know. way more important. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's a really curious, um, it's a really curious exploration of this. And, you know, I think that this is kind of uh, where science is leading towards. And I don't want to call it pseudoscience or parascience, which is, I think, the term that they give it, like paranormal. Um, yeah. Science. You know, at some point, we are going to be unlocking forms of technology in that sphere. I mean, already we have interesting discoveries such as the book, The Secret, which I read it. I loved it. I don't think that what's the quote that Jim Carrey said? He said, I don't know if you've heard the story, but Jim Carrey, I think he was 27 years old. He was working in some sales job. He wrote himself uh, a check to himself for a hundred million dollars for acting services rendered on like, Thanksgiving day. And he wow. put it in his pocket and he had it for like four or five years. Right. And on the date he got paid a hundred million dollars for acting services rendered for dumb and dumber. And the way he says it worked is that he would go out and he would uh, be on Hollywood Hills looking over Los Angeles and just envisioning and manifesting his, future success. Mm. So when asked about this by Oprah Winfrey, who's all about this kind of stuff, you know, he says, yeah, you can't just, you know, ask the universe, ask the universe for something and then, you know, go eat a sandwich. Yes. Right. Like you have to put in the work. And I think that this is the, the duality of what needs to happen in order to forge anything, right. In order to forge an idea into a reality, it's like you have the idea that only goes so far. You have to back it up with action and maybe those action Maybe that action creates a new vibration into the universe, which helps reinforce this goal, similar to how having a spinning light reinforces the plant, where it's like the plant can't just say, I need light and sit in a dark room, right? There has to be some sort of action, some sort of exchange, some duality of things where it gets what it needs. And I think, um, you know, that's really the difference between the secret and reality, um, where it's you can be forging those things. And there's this interesting cyclical nature of that where when you're when you're doing these things and, and you're, when you're really focusing on this thought and you put it to action you're also rewarding yourself internally as well as your material world and i think that is a critical piece that most you know conversations don't necessarily cover well first off i'm gonna write myself a check for a billion dollars after this great thank you uh five percent five percent should go to <laughs> um now, now, listen, that, that story is really wonderful. And I have a lot of respect for Jim Carrey. Uh, for those who don't know, he grew up in utter, 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 complete poverty. He worked in a factory. I, I just, I've read that. I'm just obsessed with that guy and his life story because he, he really went from nothing to something. And, and yes. Now, critics or I guess skeptics of the, of the secret would say, let's rewind the clock to Jim Carrey being poor. Mm. He wrote that check for a hundred million dollars. He's standing on top of the Hollywood Hills and, mm. and meditating and doing all this other stuff. The critics of the secret and, and maybe that way of thinking would say, well, once Jim Carrey um, adopted this mindset of I'm going to be a really, really successful actor, he just took constant, never-ending action, 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 action. Like he, I think one of the things he says is that his father was unsuccessful mm -hmm. working in, in insurance or accounting, something, some kind of safe career. And he said, I would never allow myself to fall into a nine-to-five. So I would argue that that's a deliberate action on behalf of Jim Carrey, where he's mm -hmm. like, I refuse to work a nine to five. I refuse to uh, form to any sort of convention. I'm just going to keep taking risky ass moves. And eventually those risky moves paid off. And, you know, the guy is incredibly funny, spontaneous, intelligent. You know, he's, he's, I would argue, just as spontaneous as Robin Williams. Like they're on mm -hmm. the same level of like being able to just be, have that comedic energy. So there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of, um, a, a lot of energy. And the critics would say, it's not the universe bending, it's just Jim Carrey not giving up. And I'm wondering how you respond to that. Why can't it be both? Because I, there's one rule in nature, is that it doesn't waste. That doesn't mean it provides fruit, but when no one's eating it, no one's consuming it, it what does it do? It rots, becomes a different thing, and the energy is displaced into a different spot. So as far as I'm concerned, that duality is still needed, right? Now, I would agree. Like, I, I, I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. I agree. 
I'm just thinking about maybe if somebody, if one of our hardcore science folks are listening to this, mm -hmm. they're going to be like, well, you have to prove it to me. You have to prove that the universe is, is bending, you know? And again, I, I, I personally would not take that tone, but I'm run, I'm wondering if there was like a Richard Dawkins figure here in this podcast <laughs> and he was yeah. listening to this, he'd be like, well, there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence that the universe is bending to anything or that. And I think that is still a barrier that we have to kind of, like in order for this to be, to make the full leap from, I, I, I don't believe it's pseudoscience, by the way. I actually think that it's fringe science and that's like a, that's a, way, a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's fringe science because, okay, everything they're doing may not be by the books and it may not fall into the conventions of a peer review journal or, or whatever mm -hmm. it, you know, they, they, it's still, it's, it's, it's highly valuable whether this stuff turns out to be junk or totally legit. I think it should continue to be done. I'm wondering how we take this fringe science and start at least knocking on the gates of um, established science. I'm wondering like how we could do that because this, this work yeah. needs to be done, but it might need to be held to a higher scientific rigor. I agree. And I can answer that question for you. So before I do, I want to preface that I come from a family of scientists. My father is a uh, department head at Emory University. And, you know, I grew up around having to prove intense discussions in terms of what's real, what's pseudo, what's this, that. I understand the rigors of scientific, you know, finding proof within science. I understand like what that takes to, to prove something, to find a proof um, in, a, in a scientific way. And unfortunately, Richard Dawkins is missing a very core component, in my opinion, to life. If you were to look at a pie chart, uh, if you were handed a sheet of paper of all knowledge on a pie chart, sure. where do you think our sliver of percentage would be in terms of human understanding of the universe? Oh, under man. 10%, under 5%, I, I, 100%? I would, probably not even close to 1%. Exactly. So <laughs> wouldn't you argue that it makes more logical sense to be open to additional aspects of technology to at least explore those things? And Richard Dawkins may say no, because he says, well, the whole point of scientific theory is to have these processes which prove things. And it's like, okay, well, there's plenty of times in science, as well as the opposite in spirituality, where both have been proven to be absolutely ridiculous. Right. Um, and I understand that you have to kind of weed through that with some sort of code of ethics, and that being the scientific theory, I respect that. But there's so much going on that we have yet to understand. I mean, even just the concept of entanglement theory. Even all the discoveries found by Albert Einstein shook what is possible in, in science in general. There's so much, there's so many odd pieces of information that we're just starting to scratch the surface to that completely reshape our current scientific understanding, right? We have this new particle called the neutrino, which travels faster than the speed of light. Wow. I, I remember being taught there was nothing faster than the speed of light, right? So that makes me question, well, okay, well, how are we measuring everything? And is that even an accurate measurement? It makes me think, right? I, no, I think that's a really good point. And I think that one thing that the establishment science community needs to do is, I don't think that they should necessarily, they should look at fringe science and not necessarily like embrace it right away. Exactly. They can't entirely dismiss it right away. And that's it's tricky. That's, that's kind of like the knee jerk reaction that I'm seeing from like your Richard Dawkins and, and some of these other scientists is that like, it's fringe, therefore we need to dismiss it right away. And I think the same exact thing happened to Einstein where he could not get his stuff published. He was working in the patent, in the patent office and like people were like, no dude, you haven't gone through the right channels with this. And I'm wondering if the science community could have just been like, okay, I'm not saying that relativity, uh, relativity is correct right now, but let's, let's take a looky-see here. Let's put, let's put it on the table and take a look. And I don't understand why the establishment science, and maybe you can answer this since you have family that works in this, why the establishment science can't just be like, drop that paper off on my desk. When I get a chance, I'm going to take a really good look at this. So it's the classic um, double-edged sword of organization and bureaucracy and basically the balance between accuracy and, you know, pigheadedness, honestly. And 
This is a core component of the structures of our education and in our science. It is a, it is a major part of our research, the, the manner in which we conduct research. There is a lot of lost information for so many reasons. First of all, a laboratory is funded through a series of grants and potential donors for a very specific reason. Right. Those grants and those donations are tied into the undergraduates and graduate members who are studying that specific aspect of science under that research laboratory. So if there's any deviation, if there's any discovery of something off that very specific vertical integration, then it could potentially derail millions of dollars and careers for people. And, you know, I've heard so many stories about this where someone finds something so incredible, so useful and so necessary, and they can't, they can't shift their focus to that. So what happens? They pass it around, right? So really the, the, the response to this is, okay, well, they give it to a colleague who does, right? And that's the general idea. But now we're getting into the hubris aspect and the culture aspect of uh, research where people write things off rather quickly because there's far more new ideas than there are potentially legitimate provable ideas. And if it's not provable, you can derail your career. Classic example, classic example in archaeology. There's so yeah. many members of archaeology who are proving through evidence of specific changes in our current understanding of archaeology. And their entire careers are destroyed because they go off the cuff and they talk about this new idea. They show all the proof that they have for it. They're completely mocked. So I don't know if the other way is better, quite frankly, um, but they're absolutely should be some sort of mystery to unlocking these higher questions of, of the universe. I don't necessarily believe the Darwinian theory covers everything of why humanity is so damn good at what we do. I mean, <laughs> we are just millennia away from anything coming remotely close. Right? So I'm hearing two things coming on from the scientific community and the, the two I think personality qualities of this bureaucracy are laziness and ego. I, I see these two things kind of going hand in hand with one another. Ego because, well, if this new guy or this new gal comes along and proves something, well then all my work has been a waste. Like imagine you've got a PhD, you're 77 years old, you spent your whole life operating in a certain paradigm. Now some you know, young 20 something comes along and disproves all of that my life is an utter complete waste. I'm like, Jesus, like I just spent the past 40 years studying this one singular thing. And now, now all of my life's work, it's like you can have an existential crisis at 78 years old, having dedicated your life. So there's destruction of people's ego. That's number one. Laziness in the sense that if someone does invent a new paradigm, then we have to kind of like reinvent the wheel and we have to like reinvent our complete understanding mm -hmm. of everything. Would you mm -hmm. agree with those two, that assessment? Yes, but I would exchange laziness for like effective decision-making because in my opinion, people working in science are the least lazy people I've ever met. Oh, I agree. Stone. Yeah, for sure. Um, but you know, at the same time, they have to make a decision. Be like, is this worth my time? Will I get something at the end of my time that reinforces my study? Will it reinforce my research lab? Will it reinforce my ultimate agenda, which is to, to fix one thing? If I could fix one thing in this world, then I'm one of the best scientists who's ever lived. I mean, that's, that's the bar. It's so difficult to solve one thing. It's so difficult to fix a single disease. It's never one person. So... I, I agree with you. Like science people are some of the most logical, hardworking folks that I've ever seen. And, and they're wonderful to talk to. Yeah. I am wondering though, if some of them, not, I'm not going to just paint a huge, uh, cover them in a huge blanket. I'm wondering if some of them though, have deviated away from philosophy though, because mm -hmm. in philosophy, the ultimate value is to be a lover of wisdom and to be a lover of truth. And you could be a really hardworking scientist. You want to win a, a Nobel prize or, or win something awesome. But at the same time, if what you're doing, like you might be able to win a grant or win a prize for something, but if you're deviating away from truth, 
I, I think this is where science might be going in a dangerous direction because it's completely branching away from philosophy, which is like, don't worry about the money. Don't worry about the prize. Don't worry about the recognition. Just follow the truth. Like, like a, like a, like a dog on a, on, on, on a hunt or something. You're just following that truth. And I think that might be a dangerous direction that science is going. So, the best scientists I've met are actually very philosophically grounded. Yeah. And they strike a wonderful balance between the unknown mysteries of this universe and the things that they discover within it. Those, I feel, those scientists are the most creative thinkers in terms of connecting to relatively unassuming pieces of information and finding the sinew between those ideas, which grows into a larger concept, which they can prove down the road. And I think that's what Einstein did. He understood the space in between different mysteries and asked the right questions along the way and found, oh, wow, I'm following this breadcrumb <laughs> to this amazing idea, which is the theory of relativity. And also, yeah, maybe time travel is real, you know, and that's, that's what happened with Einstein. Now, the, the biggest problem is really the system, I think, that they're not rewarded for this. Yes, um, yes. And the incentives to their work has to be effective. So they have to make effective decisions. So it's classic example is Egyptology. One of the most argued aspects of, of science, of anthropology, of archaeology, there is, right? Classic example is the Sphinx. How old is the Sphinx? How do you prove what its age is? And what is that in relation to our known history? One of the most disputed arguments in archaeology. There's one side that says, well, we've taken soil samples. We know exactly how old it is. It's only, what, 1,500 years old. And then on the other end, you have, okay, well, we took erosion samples um, from the, the actual surface of the Sphinx as well as the ground and discovered that, no, it's more likely twice that age. Now, those that say it's twice that age get absolutely laughed at and immediately shunned out of Egyptology because Egyptologists tend to settle in what they know and say that this is the way and deviating from that can be a dangerous dangerous course. I can't say why, you know, I, I can't say much more than that, but just from articles I've read and discoveries I found, that's just, that's a taboo. That's a taboo conversation. It's a taboo aspect of it's archaeology. It's the third, third rail of archaeology. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I, I agree with you that the incentive system is perverse because you could get punished for deviating too much. And I think also adding in uh the philosophical training or the philosophical mind to the science is, go is going to make it a lot richer. Let's move back to the issue of uh, willpower and so forth. So the study, they also um, did this work with uh, measuring the uh, magnetic energy and also a random number generator spread across the earth. Could you uh, expand upon that a little bit more? Sure. So that was the like macro implementation of the Global Consciousness Project where they put uh, these sensors all over the globe to try to tap into the oneness of a global consciousness. Now, this is where there's just so many factors Yeah. that I just, I don't know how they will definitively prove this. But the idea was, is that they predicted a resurgence of an energy in the consciousness that correlated with profound global events, including the death of Princess Diana. So said 9-11. Now, you know, of course, this is where it really gets controversial. I don't know how far that goes. It's a lot easier for me to understand that it's measurable in a clinical room with less variables. But when you're throwing it out into the world, it's kind of like, you know, that's a little, that can be a little culty and a little weird. And, you know. That, I mean, honestly, that, like, first off, they were saying they were measuring magnetic and again, I have no science background here, folks. So yeah, me neither. Let me make yeah, that yeah, clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. so I'm like magnetic energy. I, like, I'm I'm a little confused as to what exactly that means. And then the questions I also have is, why is magnetic energy correlated with consciousness? So if they're measuring uh, our consciousness, what where is the relationship between uh, magnetic poles or magnetic energy on the planet and and our consciousness? That I'm not seeing. And I'm also wondering if there was this really high magnetic energy on just a random Wednesday that they're not telling us right. about. Because I'm like, I'm like, okay, maybe there was this high level of magnetic energy on 9-11, right. but I'm like, maybe there was 
high magnetic energy yesterday and no one's telling me that. Honestly, we should really try to get someone from the Global Consciousness Project on here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, to explain this in scientific detail because I'm not going to do it justice. So let me uh, try to dumb it down for you know people on uh, my, I guess, mental level and understanding of this. So I think it really bases itself around the idea that uh, as human beings, our thoughts and our consciousness and our being and our energy sends out vibrational waves magnetically through the air. I think that is basically where they centered it around. And, you know, anything beyond that, I can't say definitively is true or false, but I'm pretty sure that's how they, they, they chose magnetic energy as the way that they measured it. But, you know, again, bringing it to the, to the global impact of it, it's just, I, I have a lot of questions personally. I have a lot of skepticism around it, but the idea to me fits very much like a glove where it would only make sense, you know, pointing towards the scarcity of resources to the incredible abundance of resources, both on this planet, in our solar system, in our galaxy. It's disproportionate. It's not, it's not equally spread. I think that that would make sense that that would be a core tenet of the universe where it's like, yeah, it's, life isn't fair. Things aren't equal. There's situations are vastly different. It only makes sense that there would be some sort of consciousness structure where they intend to somehow shift it in the favor of the living thing mm-hmm. in order to get what it needs to survive. I, 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 I hear you. And, and I, I fluctuate with my belief on that. Um, every, you know, he, like I, I don't, I, I don't, definitively have my thumb on the issue. I'll give you an example from my own life. And maybe this has happened to you as well. Have you ever just been thinking about somebody, not your mom, not your dad, not, not your, you know, girlfriend or whoever you speak to on a daily basis. Have you ever been thinking about somebody um, that you haven't talked to in years, like really, really years you have not talked to this person and you're thinking about them and then boom, you get a text from them or boom, you hear their name like somehow or they message you or get a phone call from them like an hour later within within this like very, very, very small window of time. And that to me, and this has happened to me not just once, it's actually happened, I'm not saying it happens every day, but it does happen enough times where I'm like, this kind of exceeds probability a little bit. And it's like, I'm not talking about my mom who, you know, calls me on, on, on a regular basis or something. I'm really thinking about like old friends from college who I've long since just fallen out of touch with. And, and these things do happen on, on a recurring enough basis that I say to myself, there, there's a, something a little bit more like my thoughts probably have some level of impact on why this person just called me who I haven't talked to in a few years, you know, 30 minutes later. For sure. That's happened to me. I'm sure everyone listening has had that happen to them a couple of times. I have no way to explain that. I can tell you my personal belief. Yeah, go ahead, man. I think thoughts travel and I think we are just amazing beings. I mean, I know there has been plenty of times that my gut has literally saved my life. Wow. That a feeling of intuition has kept me from doing something that I would regret later or could put me in serious physical harm, if not into a place where I potentially could have died. So a lot of the times, because of the way modern man navigates through the world, I don't listen to that enough. And when I do, I generally always pay the price. So as I get older and older, I know that feeling when I get that little pit into my stomach and something kind of turns on its side. Um, and I'm like, okay, why is that? I need to listen to those intuitions. I do think that there is some part of our brain, maybe not even our brain, because there's almost just as many nerve endings, I believe in your stomach. Right. Uh, which is why people kind of feel that in your gut, right? Like, what does your gut tell you? I think that's where that comes from. You think that like the psychologist or like Freud might push back and say, that's your subconscious talking or that's your intuition talking. So like, let's just say you meet a really sketchy dude 
and your gut speaks to you, you might have had a lot of uh, prior instances of meeting sketchy dudes that look a certain way or something. And now your gut is telling you, man, I should really avoid this guy because he's kind of a collection of all of these subconscious repressed memories of meeting other sketchy dudes in your life. Do you, do you think that there's any credence in that? There's definitely credence to it. I mean, I think Freud is an absolute genius and we'd be far worse off without him, but I don't necessarily think that covers hundred percent of the subject. So again, I think this goes back to a scientist finding something that is easily measurable and that also provides a vehicle to their thought, to their idea. I guess it would be a little difficult to prove self, you know, subconscious in the id like Freud did, but there are ways to measure that. And I think that's part of the reason why his idea is considered to be, have a little more gravitas than some of these quote unquote fringe ideas. But I don't necessarily think that all of them should be discredited, right? Right. I would say that walking up to somebody like this, seeing this sketchy person, yes, I have subconscious beliefs and ideas about this situation, but also what are the words he's saying? What about the neuro uh, linguistics of what he's saying that's like sewing in these ideas? And then how do I feel about the words he's saying? How much emphasis is he putting on like an undercurrent of violence that I'm like, oh, this is escalating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, females can talk about that all the time, right? They're sitting down in a bar and they have some guy talking to them, some stranger. They can hear if this person's a little bit strange, a little bit weird, and they have that intuition guide. Is that the it? But let's let's move it away from from people for a sec, because I think people come with a lot of uh, like packaging, if you would. Let's say that you um, are planning to go on a vacation Mm. and everything looks totally legit. Like I'm going to the Caribbean or something like that. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, man, I have a bad feeling about getting on this plane or like I think there's a story with um the creator of Family Guy, Seth McFarlane, mm-hmm. uh, he was actually supposed to be on the plane that uh, was no. involved in 9-11 or something. And, you know, maybe maybe that was like his gut or, or he overslept or something. Something was going on where he didn't get on that plane. Like something, wow. something happened, like the universe somehow bended and he didn't board that plane. And I think that kind of stuff is more proof positive that the universe is bending to our gut or to our will because – when we're evaluating the speech patterns of a sketchy person or something, that's, that might be our subconscious and our bias coming into it. But if it's some random vacation or some like, should I get on that plane kind of feeling that I think is like really the universe grab, grabbing you. Have you ever had an experience like that before? Yes, I have. But you know, bringing up the Seth MacFarlane example, it's also like, well, okay, did the passengers who did end up on the plane will themselves there? why is it indiscriminate that this one individual would have enough intuitive intuitive hits to know not to get on when in actuality, like 150 other people didn't, you know, yeah, that, that raises a lot of like controversial questions. And I don't know how to answer that, but I can say, you know, for sure, there have been plenty of choices that I've made purely off of my intuition, purely. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's a problem. I don't even think it's necessarily always an accurate means of living either. I think it's, one of many different sources of information that a human being should draw from in order to come to a, to a specific conclusion. Yeah. You know? Like I always go into a probability as well, right? If, okay, for example, if I'm in a line in a public place and then, you know, you start having those thoughts with all of our active shooters and things like this, and then your mind just kind of goes into what's the worst situation? How would you do it? Like if I'm with a loved one, be like, how would I protect her or whatever? And I always go through probability. It's like, okay, even if the event happens, what's the probability that I would get hit? And then I look at the amount of people. So I could have an intuitive hit where I don't necessarily feel where I am or what I'm doing is safe, but I still understand that risk comes with life. And you also need to weigh the logical portion of this, which is right. what would the probability be of me doing that? And I think those in tandem, again, the duality of it all, it's not one specific thing. So how about also I'm thinking the post rationalization of stuff. Like a lot of people will have something bad happen to them. They'll get fired from their job. And like, well, if I hadn't gotten fired from that job, I would never have met my wife, you know, and blah, 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 blah. So I'm wondering if some of this universe bending is post rationalization of bad stuff that happened to you to then explain something good. That's a really, really good question. 
I think there is a structure in humanity where we just decide that coincidence and destiny took things over. Yeah, yeah, there to is. Con- to convene ourselves out of the out of the chaos. And then I would also say that there is such thing as destiny. There is such thing as that structure. I think that there's multiple destinies per person and that a series of choices leads you down a series of paths. I mean, it's, um, you know, just like how we can predict how a dog would walk into a room. Every dog is different, but there are certain behavioral patterns which guide them throughout that process. You know, you know, the dog's going to come in and sniff the ground or maybe walk over to the food or, you know, wag it. You know, there's there's a million ways that if we were to put that idea into some sort of action, we could assume specific things that will happen. But I think overall, it's really just an interesting balance. And the study of this global consciousness project is delving into one specific aspect of it. And no one else is doing this. No one else is assuming consciousness choice. All these things are creating waves, are literally creating a physical change. Um, have you ever heard that one study? I think we talked about this once where I think it was a Japanese scientist who studied um, water, I believe. And if it's like yelled and berated at, the structure of the water changes. No, I never heard that one. Uh, that's interesting. So he put all these different slides under a microscope and studied the cellular structure, the actual structure of it. Yeah. To uh, water that was like yelled at, or maybe it was snowflakes or something like this. Uh, that was yelled at and some that was preached love and then some that was happy all these you know and they would be basically is very french right but they'd be like yelling emotions towards these things and seeing if it affected the cellular structure and there's a lot of evidence in that a lot of image evidence to his studies and you know people are asking okay well these thoughts are they doing the same thing to me Mm. there's some sort of central operating system that covers all these different aspects of my physical, my mental, and my spiritual. Do they all come into one central central place? And if so, wouldn't that be thoughts? Yeah, there's a lot of questions I have, like if the, if the volume and the tone and the pitch of all of these things were exactly the same. But I, I think to kind of conclude here, a good point. We, we, we need to be studying this stuff a lot more. I'm not saying that we should just embrace the global consciousness project and just be like, yeah, welcome aboard right here alongside microbiology and, and, and teach it in college yet. Like I don't, we're not at that level, but I think that we need to be studying these things. And there is, I think also in, um, again, not no science background, but I think even in quantum mechanics, there is this idea that something will react differently just by looking at it. Like the react, like the, um, again, the my, wobble my, effect. Yeah. So, some, something, yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but there's this idea that, um, neurons and, and electrons behave differently, whether you're looking at them or not looking at them, meaning that it's kind of like this idea that Albert Einstein posed that if let's say you have a, something going on in a room, like maybe you have like a couple arguing, the outcome of that argument will be different if there is a mouse in the corner of the room that's secretly looking on. Even if no one in the room sees the mouse, even if no one is aware that the mouse is there, just by virtue of the mouse looking on and seeing something, that somehow influences outcomes regardless of whether the anyone sees the mouse or anyone even knows that it's there. And that that's like a crazy thing that a fly in a room can actually make some kind of difference in outcome. Even if no one sees the fly, it only sees you. I'm going to look into that after this. Honestly, that's, that sounds really interesting (laughs) up my alley. Um, Yeah. I have a lot of questions with that too. You know, there's of course relative, there's, there's a relative aspect to these comments too right like yeah yeah it's it's incredible um alex thank you so much for being on the show again yeah today. anytime this concludes the 33rd episode of the truth island podcast i'm aaron azarod